Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. To hear talks from each of our services, please visit christchurchlondon.org. I mean, uh, I know that's a, something you hear people say a lot, but it is such an honor. To, I feel like I've walked in on a family meal, a family gathering that I, that I can't believe I've been invited to, and I get to just enjoy the decadent feast that you've been preparing all weekend. It feels like that. I don't know what it's been like each session, but it feels like the temperature might have been just rising and rising. This morning, that worship was just phenomenal. I've often thought about, the, uh, about Pentecost, you know, and the tongues of fire falling, and perhaps it was the temperature in the room just got so hot, you know? It just, it, there was this fervor and a feel that amongst you all. So it's, it's a great honor. And perhaps I'll just, I'll, I'll give you the, the end of where I'm going to go this morning, I would love it if we could just end where we started. If we could end just lifting up Jesus like we did then, I'll be very happy and sobbing on the floor as I was a minute ago. Uh, I love Philippa and David. One time for Philippa and David. Come on. Come on. Raise the roof. Come on. Come on. Hey. Um, as David said, we haven't spent that much time together, but the time that we have spent together has been incredibly impactful. I flew over for the Everything Conference from Canada because we had just moved our life from England to Canada. And by the time the weekend ended, I, I landed on a Friday. I was in London for about three days, flew back to Toronto on a Monday. By the time I got back to Toronto, we had planned to move back to London <laughs> from, from spending time with these guys. And the Lord spoke to me during that weekend about London. We weren't living in London, but he spoke to me about London. The Everything Conference messed me up in a, in a good way. I'd, I'd, I'd never been in an environment with believers who had such an integrated view of the kingdom where it was, it was exuberant worship. It was allowing the spirit to move but with a deep conviction about our role in society. And it lit a fire in me. And so we haven't spent that much time together, but the time we have has been so impactful. And I, I want to just continue some of where you have been this weekend, having conversations about what does it look like to be so filled with this gospel and so convinced that our role in society is to bring this kingdom. And I have a question that I've been pondering just the last couple of days in anticipation of being here. And the question is this. What was it that so captivated the earliest followers of Jesus that they gave everything that they had to follow him? What was it that so captivated them? And here's the second part of that question I've been pondering. And could it be possible for us to be filled with the same conviction as they initially were? And so where I'm going now is I'm just going to reflect on some of the things I think could have been ingredients to that deep conviction to leave everything and follow him. And we're going to end with a response of, we're in. Let's do the same. So if you've got Bibles, you can open them up to right to, right to the beginning, to Matthew 4. And um, I'm going to read a passage that you all probably know very well. And this is when I'd speak to that Sunday school syndrome that sometimes kicks in and says, I know, I know this one. I've heard this story many times before. You know, the philosopher, theologian, Dallas Willard, he said, sometimes the familiar can breed contempt. It becomes so familiar and you become so used to it. Jesus said it like this, you know, a prophet isn't welcome in his hometown. Sometimes we have a similar relationship with the scriptures and with tenets of our faith. Oh, I know that. I know where you're going. But the apostle Paul prayed, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. You know, we're not here to do some intellectual pursuit. May the eyes of our heart be enlightened. So before I read it, we'll inhale, exhale, and then say together, may the eyes of our heart be enlightened. Are you with me? So on three, we'll breathe in one, 
two, three. May the eyes of our hearts be enlightened. Matthew 4, starting from verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon, who is called Peter, that wasn't confusing, and Andrew, his brother. And they were casting nets into a sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately, could we all just say immediately? Immediately Immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. They left their boat their livelihood, their vocation, their potential, and their father, their relationship, their family, their, their everything that normalized and rooted their existence, and they followed him. This is a radical passage, and I want to suggest that their response to Jesus was immediate because their understanding of Jesus was accurate. Here's why. Just, just stay with me here. Jesus is walking the shore of Galilee, and Galilee, as many of you will know, is this hot spot of activity for education, for religious learning. You know, the synagogues are bustling. People are coming to understand the Torah. The children are being raised from as early as they possibly can to read the Torah, to recite the Torah, to memorize it, to understand these stories of their people. And so for these fishermen, they grew up in an environment where the fervor of religious understanding and activity was hot. They grew up around it. You know, the rabbis would be teaching at various stages and various levels. The initial stage just being, I just need you to know the stories, you know, just reading the stories. The second stage being, I want you to be able to read the stories, literacy. I want you to be able to read it. So for these young boys and girls learning. And then the, the, the stage above that, I want you now to be able to understand revelations that have been taught to us by our fathers of the faith around the scriptures. They've been around it. And now these boys would get to a certain age, around 12, 13, and they would have this pivotal moment in their life where they would approach one of these rabbis with their shoulders back. And the best, most polite, courageous voice. And they would say, can I follow you, Rabbi? And the rabbi would look at them, the, 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 the Talmudim, which would be the, the, where we get the disciple idea from, the Talmudim. The potential of this young boy becoming a follower. He'd look at him. And his question would be this. Can you carry the weight of my yoke? Can you carry the burden of revelation that I have. Ultimately, the rabbi is saying, can I see myself in you? And the majority of these young boys, the response would be, no, you can't carry this. And so they would go back to their fathers and they would pick up the trade of their father and they would walk a life that they were qualified to walk. Probably with their shoulders less back, maybe hunched over, just walking back along the shore to the fishermen that they grew up around. So this question is like prevalent. Do I see myself in you? Now, Jesus, Jesus has got a backstory to this point. And we have to understand when we read through the entirety of the Gospels, Jesus is referred to as rabbi time and time and time and time again by everyone in society, from the layman to the Pharisee to the lawyers. To, he's called out rabbi by name over and over and over again. There's an understanding of who he is and his authority. In fact, 
You know, one of his earliest showdowns is standing at the top of the synagogue and reading that messianic scripture from Isaiah at the, right in front of everybody. He has this position. He has this authority. It says he grew in authority and stature from a young boy. And there's this, uh, there's this image that I like just to meditate upon of a few boys with their fathers. And we're talking about boys. We're talking about young men here. We're not talking about old. We're talking about young men working under their fathers in their trade, mending nets, doing a normal day work, doing a laboring day work, hands calloused, minds weary. And they look across the shore and they see Yeshua, the rabbi, walking towards them. And perhaps, in the case of John and James, perhaps Zebedee sees him first. And he says, boys, shoulders back, you know. Rabbi Yeshua is walking down. And Rabbi Yeshua is walking down the shore, and perhaps they're wondering why he's spending any time on the shore. And as he gets closer to them, they realize he's walking directly to them, towards them. And he gets closer and closer to the boat. And he says, nothing else here but follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. So in one sentence, he gives them an invitation and a redefining of vocation. Follow me, and I will infuse what you do now with eternal impact. I'm not going to give you, like, we talk about fishermen. Like, I don't know how many fishermen are in the house. I wouldn't assume that many. So to fully understand this, we have to, we have to appropriate that uh, phrasing into our life. Whatever it is that you do. However you spend your time, follow me, and I will give eternal significance to everything that you do. Follow me, and I will completely radically change your entire millisecond of every second, of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every month. It will be infused with this eternal. So I, re I reckon Zebedee at this point is like, James, John, go. It would be a terrible move for a father to give away his sons that he had raised to work his trade to follow a rabbi. He wasn't going to get any money back from them. So this was a radical move, but it makes sense. If in the town of Galilee, the greatest kind of stature and the most you know, impressive thing a young boy could be is to have a rabbi say, yes, I see myself in you. You know, the cost of following a rabbi was your entire life. You're around them every minute of every day. It is said that to some rabbis, the boys would follow them so intimately, they would even observe the parts of our humanity we don't let anyone observe because they want to know how do you do everything. Because ultimately, the role of a rabbi was to form and mold the disciple into being them. So Jesus is looking at these boys and he's not thinking, what, it, what is it that you can get done with your life? It is, who will you become with your life? And ultimately, Yeshua says, I see myself in you. I see myself in you. Paul said it like, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Do a 30-second meditation. We'll close, I'm going to close my eyes as well. We'll close our eyes for a moment. I want you to picture yourself. You've come home from a tree, and you're back in the mundane, normal nature of your everyday life, whether it's changing nappies or it's sat there in the office cubicle, whatever it is. I just want you to picture yourself there. You look up, and you see Christ walking towards you. You see Jesus walking towards you, and he's interrupting a very normal Tuesday afternoon or a Thursday morning, and he says your name. Just, just, just 
meditate here. This is, this is, we have a sacred imagination that we can tap into. I want you just to hear Jesus saying your name. And then he says, I see myself in you. Would you follow me? Would you follow me? I believe in this moment, Jesus awakens within these young men an internal, eternal longing. That there's something in them that hadn't fully been awoken yet. But it was always there and it's in every single one of us. An internal, eternal longing that nothing here can satisfy. Hey, let me, let me ruin the whole story for you. The aim is to end unsatisfied. The aim of our life is to end unsatisfied. Because nothing here was enough. Nothing here satisfied the internal, eternal longing. I like thinking about the great picture and promise in Revelation, which is, you know, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And how our days here on earth are really preparing us to sit down and have a feast together one day. And part of our discipline as followers of Jesus is just simply to remain hungry, to stop snacking, to stop taking shortcuts. My mom used to cook a lot of meals in the crock pot, you know, in the slow cooker. And that would, I mean, that, that would just, the whole house would be smelling of those beef stews. It would be just a room of filling every single room. And so what does that do? It actually increases your hunger, kind of awakens a hunger, you know. So what would I do? I'd come down to the kitchen, start pulling open the cupboards and find something to snack on to appease that hunger. She'd slap my hand away. I don't want you to ruin your appetite, she would say. I'm preparing something for you. The evidence that you're picking up, the evidence that you're sensing, that's for what's to come. Don't distract yourself now. Stop snacking. Stop trying to find material practices that could attempt to satisfy an internal, eternal longing. It's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. Jesus said in his great inauguration speech, you know how every leader, prime minister, president, monarch at a point has this speech in which they declare, this is what I'm about. This is what my reign will, you know, accomplish. Jesus' inauguration speech, the inauguration speech of the kingdom is the Sermon on the Mount. Like he stands up and he says, this is what I'm here to do. This is what I'm about. He redefines what it means to be human in those few chapters. And in the Beatitudes, which really kicks it off, we could spend all day on the Beatitudes. But he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness sake, for they shall be satisfied. And there's a number of ways of looking at that. The way that I find most convicting, the way that I find it most challenging is this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they shall be satisfied. As if to say the satisfaction is in the being hungry, you know. The satisfaction isn't in appeasing the hunger. It's in the hunger. So if you were to be asked about the, the state of your spiritual life and your response was, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. That's a sign of deep spiritual maturity. I'm hungry. You know, I'm, 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 I'm restless. I'm just, there's nothing here that's good enough, you know. There's nothing here. And that doesn't mean you don't live with this daily contentedness. Like your life is a gift and you're grateful and you're living with this contentedness. But nothing has touched that internal, eternal longing. C.S. Lewis talked about, you know, a creature cannot know itself outside of its creator. 
And everything that validates this creature is in response to how it's been provided for by its creator. He said, a duck needs water, and there is water, you know? And he just kind of broke it down like that. And I love this idea of we can't understand ourselves outside of our con- the context of our creator. He defines our spiritual hunger. C.S. Lewis said, so if it was that you had such a hunger that nothing in this earth could satisfy it, nothing in this world could satisfy it, would it then make sense that perhaps you were created for another world? If there's, a, if, there's a, if there's a longing in you that nothing in this world can satisfy, wouldn't it there logically make sense that you were created for another world? Oh, I love that. And we get so lost because we've forgotten ourselves in God. We've, we no longer see ourselves in God. We see ourselves in our own self-observation and obsession. And we just, the anxiety grows, the comparison grows, the jealousy grows, and nothing is enough. But in the wrong way, there's two types of hunger. There's the hunger that's born out of comparison, which every single marketing campaign has ever been driven by, whether it's on a billboard or an Instagram advert, is to convince you that you don't have what you need. And if you just had something more, it would be enough, right? So it's fueling this hunger, but it's born out of this comparison, this coveting, this, this, this not enoughness. The other hunger is the hunger of conviction, of I'm meant to stay deeply hungry. I'm meant to stay empty. That's the word empty so I can be filled with something good. Jesus said, blessed are those, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. And the, 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 almost a clearer way for us to understand the word poor in its relationship to the Greek into English would be empty. Empty. Blessed are the empty. Blessed are those who are empty, not void of their character, not void of their, you know, identity, but empty of the illusions. Blessed are those who have emptied themselves of the illusions and the egos, for they shall be filled. But when has it ever been a compliment to have been said, you're full of yourself? Blessed are the empty, for they shall be filled with the good stuff. I'm curious. I don't know the answer to this, but there's something that about these early followers of Jesus. Simon, Andrew, James, and John, there's something about them which I believe these ingredients were there at the beginning. This hunger. Perhaps it was a hunger even born out of the dejection of not being a a disciple. Perhaps it was that. And this sense of, I want more. There's got to be more. And perhaps there was a weakness to them, you know? Just a fragility of, this is my life. This is the ordinary nature of my life. And there was something about these this weakness and this hunger that was the perfect ingredient for God to speak into and the response to be so full of conviction and fervor. Yes, yes. Sometimes the problem is we have become so overqualified in one area, we forget how unqualified we are in the other area and as a result, how dependent we are upon Christ himself. I always had this, this dream. When I was probably about 19, 18, 19, I began to have this dream to study philosophy because I'd, I'd read a bit of philosophy. I'd been intrigued by it. My parents were missionaries. My dad would spend every Friday across the table with the local imam with a risk board and a bottle of Coke. And they would spend Friday evening playing risk, drinking Coke. And the imam would play with green, the color of Islam, and my dad would play with red, blood of Jesus. And they would battle for world domination <laughs> over, the, over the evening. And I would sit by the door and I would listen as they debated. 
And they would put the Bible and the Quran on the table, and they would begin the conversation each Friday saying, these both can't be right. And they would begin this conversation. Then every Christmas, my, my, my family would gather, and half of my family, uh, theists, another half, atheists, and the atheists are more educated than the theists. So the debates were just brilliant. And I just grew up around that environment. I, I want to study philosophy. The problem was I left school with nothing. I spent most of my days at school standing outside the classroom, having been sent out. I got expelled four times. I left with no qualifications. And I, and I found this degree. I was living in Bath to study philosophy. And everything about the degree description was just, I want to do that. But it said in bold, if you do not have an A-level in philosophy, you know, you cannot apply. You need at least an A-level in philosophy. Or if you're a mature student, a relating qualification in philosophy. I had nothing. And I stared at the screen, and I felt that small, niggling voice of the spirit who just said, what do you have to lose, you know? And so I applied, deeply aware of being massively unqualified. Stay with me now. So a week later, I'm living in a house with a few friends. I'm engaged to my wife, Kara, and the washing machine in the house breaks. So we, um, we go to the local laundromat to, uh, to wash our clothes because you don't want to spend any more time in a house of men without a washing machine than you need to. So Kara and I go into the, to the laundromat, and we, we, uh, we start putting the coins into the washing machine, and they just fall out, fall out, fall out. There's none of them are working. There's one that ends up working. So we put the clothes in. There's probably 20 washing machines. One of them's working. Close start spinning. We sit down. We're young. We're engaged. We're dreaming about a honeymoon that we can't afford. And we're just chatting. Within five minutes of the washing machine being on, stay with me, a Buddhist monk walks in. And he walks in with his orange robes and his basket of orange robes, and he starts trying the washing machines. So I tell him, you know, they're all broken. There's only one that's working. So you can either wait with us for an hour or two, or you can come back. And he sits down. And then I make the very astute, you know, point, you must be Buddhist. <laughs> and she says, yeah, well done. And, uh, and we, start, we start talking about Buddhism. And uh, we talk about Islam. We talk about Christianity. We talk philosophy. We have this incredible two-hour conversation. And uh, at the end of the conversation, he says, it's interesting to meet someone your age. So, you know, intrigued by philosophy and religion. And have you ever thought about studying it? And I said, I said, yeah, I have, but uh, I don't have the qualifications. And he said, where have you applied? And I told him. He said, I'm the head of philosophy there. <laughs> and then a week later, I received an unconditional offer to study philosophy. <laughs> and and I, I think back to these boys. I think back to these boys. These boys are dejected, rejected, unqualified, you know, and we forget that we talk about the love of God is unconditional, right? So, but when we have conditions, conditions are that which render us qualified or not qualified, but the love of God is unconditional, you know, so it renders our need for qualification, you know, void, irrelevant, my, I'm, I'm, I'm covered and led by the love of God, this radical love of God that opens doors that no man can close, closes doors that no man can open. And, and the reality of living in such a state is a natural humility should come upon us, a deep reverence and humility that you live, live every step of your life in dependency, weakness. The Apostle Paul put it so bluntly for us. Let me, let me read from Corinthians. He says, he said, 
talking about his weakness. He said, three times I have pleaded with the Lord that it should leave me. We all have a it, you know. You know what it is. Three times. And we're looking at Paul saying, three times. I prayed that 3,000 times it would leave me. This weakness, this sense of unqualification, this sense of dejection, this sense of not enoughness, this sense of limping. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Let me pause there. I, I grew up in, in revivalism. I grew up in the charismatic church. I'm a son of missionaries, and I'm grateful for my heritage. But I heard so much about the power of God, that there'll be a move of power. And we prayed that the power of God would meet us in our, in our gatherings. And it's as I've gone older and I've grown more aware of my failures and my fragility. Now, I mean, name this. I've been in 12-step in, in recovery meetings for the last year because I realized there was something going on that I couldn't just pray away. I, I needed help. And I've been going along, and all my people in the room who have been in recovery know exactly what I'm talking about. It, the, the reality, we're all in recovery, just, you know. And there is a 12-step meeting for everything, just so you know. And, and what happens in these meetings is you begin by confessing. And you say, this is where, I, step one is, I have found myself powerless. And that this is unmanageable, so I've come here. Why have you come here? For abundance. That's the promise of the 12 sets. Abundance. Jesus says, I have come to give you life and life in abundance. There is one who has come to kill, steal, and destroy. But I have come to give you life and life in abundance. And in that process, in the recovery means, it's this absolute announcement of weakness and dependency. But as you journey in, there's this quiet strength that begins building. And I've often thought, I've experienced the power of God in recovery meetings like I thought I would experience it in revival meetings. Because when people admit their weakness, as, our, as the great apostle Paul says, he hears this, my grace is sufficient for you. I think sometimes God is looking at his people saying, are you going to let me in? Are you going to acknowledge your need for grace? Are you going to remember that you are woefully unqualified for any of this? Are you going to remember me? Remember the bread and wine. Remember that in my broken body, you're made whole. Remember in my blood, grace has entered the story. Do you remember me? And I believe as we become more aware of that weakness, as we become more aware of that dependency, we'll see more unexplained. I love what you said about the cross. It makes no sense. It's un it's, what, how do you put it? We were completely unprepared for this. We could never have conceived of it. It's foolishness. My power is made perfect in weakness, so the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, says Paul, I am content with weakness, with insult, with hardships, with persecution and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. He said, when I am weak, I am strong. I know Philippa talked about persecution. So the posture towards persecution is not a pseudo sense of strength you know ready yourself you know are you ready men no 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 it's a deeper deeper conviction of weakness and dependency and foolishness I remember at the everything conference Tom Holland the historian was there and you asked him Tom Holland has written a credible book called Dominion about the history of Christianity and uh you asked him what do you think from your learning from your reading the church most needs to be reminded of now. And he said to be weird. He said to be weird. It seems to me, 
in his very well-spoken voice. He said, it seems to me the church was always most effective when it was stranger to society. And he said, your job is to sacralize the secular. Oh! It would make sense that we were made for another world if nothing here could satisfy us. It would make sense. This is in one of the great parables of our age, the Lion King. This is how it plays out. Simba, Simba has tried out, he's tried heathenism, right? He's lived with Timon and Pumbaa. And he's, he's, the, the philosophers, he spent time with the philosophers, the heathenists. And, and they're talking about, how, how does it go? Uh, what's the phrase? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And give me the translation. It means, okay, all right, all right. There's, there's, there's only one, yeah, there's only one, there's only one way you can live without worry, and that's to live with the Prince of Peace. There's only one, that, that, don't worry about anything, that doesn't work unless it's coming out of the mouth of Jesus, it doesn't, right? So he's, so it doesn't work, because he, as he gets, gets older, the philosophy, that hedonistic philosophy becomes more and more shallow. So now he finds himself wandering the wilderness alone, right? And there, he's left the philosophers, and he comes across the prophet. The prophet Rafiki. And, and stay with me. And Rafiki, Rafiki comes up to Simba and he says, Simba, I know who you are. <laughs> and Simba says, you don't know me. And he replies, you're Mufasa's son. And, and, and Simba says, you must not know. My father is dead. And Rafiki replies, wrong again. <laughs> Your father lives. He lives in you. And he says, come down to the waters. And he takes Simba down to the waters. And Simba looks into the water. And at first he sees what we only ever see, himself. And then he says, look a little harder. And then he sees his father. Christ in me, the hope of glory. The Apostle Paul put out this. I remember my, my dad took me for a breakfast at Travel Lodge one day and gave me the gospel. And this is when the gospel made sense to me. We sat across the breakfast table at Travel Lodge and he got out Galatians 2.20. And he said, he said this, is how, this is how Paul understood the gospel, son. He said, it is no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives in me. So he personalizes the whole gospel. It is no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. So the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. So the longer we look at ourselves, the sooner we should start seeing Christ. The, the rabbi says to the disciple, I see myself in you. Our spiritual formation leads us not into a sense of superiority or qualification, but a deepening sense of dependency upon him. That we can't begin a day without seeing ourselves through the eyes of Christ. Are you with me? I wonder if the, the worship guys would jump back up. And uh, I, I, hate, I don't want to throw you. Can, can, we, can we go back in? You're worthy of it all. Can we, can we end up there? Is that all right? Um, Hey, can I, can, I just, can I read you just that, that Lewis quote? And then we're going to end with one more thing, and then we're going to pray together. He says this. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is water. Mankind feels sexual desires. Well, there is sex. 
He says, if I find myself with a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The great promise from Genesis to Revelation and the great commission for us as followers is Jesus is building his new world now amongst us that every good and perfect thing, every sacred work will build into this new kingdom that we are partaking in the rebuilding of the world here and now. There's a scene in Mel Gibson's The Passion, and it's extra biblical. You don't find it in the gospel, but it's this poetic image of Jesus, and he's carrying the cross. He's carrying the burden and all that timber. The thorns are pressing into his skull. He's bleeding, and he's walking through the crowd, and he looks over to the side, and he sees Mother Mary, his mother that has carried him, that fed him, that changed him, that led him. And he looks over at Mother Mary and her face is just bewilderment and tragedy and grief. She is seeing her boy suffering in a way that is unimaginable. And he looks, he looks the image of pain personified. And he looks over at her and he says, see mother? I'm making all things new. I, I want to end with this sense of commissioning that oh, our weakness is all God needs to move. Our dependency is all God needs to move. Our brokenness and our fragility is all God needs to move. I want to say over many of you sat in here who, 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 are just struggling to comprehend your role in everything that you've heard this weekend. I just want to remind you that the earliest followers of Jesus were the most unqualified participants. The earliest followers were the most unqualified participants. That this is an invitation for absolutely every single one of us. And that meditation that we did at the beginning, I pray that you would take it and do it every single day of your life. So I want to read a final quote from one of the great sages and saints of the church. One of the most unqualified examples of heroism is called Saint Samwise Gamgee. And as I read this quote and I begin to pray, I wonder if you would just stand up because this is, as all the Tolkien and Lewis readers in the house know, the words in those books are, are some of the most powerful of a redeemed imagination. He says this, and, and perhaps call to mind what you've heard over this weekend, because I know, I know that with, with, with Philippa and David and the team here, I know that this isn't a gathering of people that hide themselves from the cruelties and the darkness of our age, that this isn't, you're not just here getting hyped up, you're getting here, you're, you're, you're sober-minded, and you're, you're aware of the world that we're walking into. You're aware of the afflictions that face us. And I want you just to bear that in mind as I read this. And also hold in tension the great hope that's been announced throughout this weekend and the great commissioning, the consecration that you experienced over the weekend, the fellowship, the great rejoicing together. He said, it's like in all the great stories, Mr. Frodo. You know, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. 
Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad things had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even the darkness must pass. Jesus, would you illuminate our existence? Would you restore to us that internal, eternal longing? Would you awaken our hunger? I think there's, there's particularly two groups of people I want to pray for this morning. Those who, who want their hunger back, who could testify, I have been, I have been snacking. And let me confess to you today, my, you know, a form of my snacking is, is distraction, is just slowly dumbing down my spirit. And sometimes it's with intellectualism, you know, sometimes it's with, with, with even with study, it, just dumbing down the fervor of my spirit, the foolishness of my spirit. Sometimes I, I, I distract myself with just with entertainment and I'm, I'm snacking on materialistic and, and fleshly satisfactions that just never ever compare to being hungry to to being aware that there's a feast that we won't have until Christ looks at us and says see I've made all things new so for everyone in the room that just wants that hunger to return I speak over you blessed are those who hunger and thirst for they shall be satisfied and I, I want to pray for those in the room that feel just that sense of I'm unqualified. I shouldn't be in the room. I, I don't know what part I have to play in this story. And perhaps it's not because, you know, you, you, you don't have a vocation or you don't have a, a sense of significance in your life. It's actually when it comes down to the kingdom, when it comes to building the church, when it comes to equipping the saints, when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to the prophetic voice you carry, that is an area you feel so unqualified for. I want to remind you that there are no experts in the followers of Jesus. There are only beginners. We begin every single day all over again. In 12-step recovery, we say one day at a time. And there couldn't be a better phrase for followers of Jesus. One day at a time. One day at a time. One day at a time. So Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in the house, for those who want to reawaken that hunger. May it be. I wonder if you might just use a few moments of this time to confess and to repent. James said, without confession, we can't be healed, you know? That which is hidden can't be healed. Confess your sins and you will be healed. Jesus says, the, the, the verse before the scripture I read at the beginning of the disciples dropping their nets, the line before that, from the time Jesus began to preach, he said, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Repent, turn around, change your consciousness. Just confess before the Lord. Lord, I bring this before you where I have distracted myself, where I have been snacking. I'm gonna stop talking. Let's just spend a couple minutes in confession.
Sometimes we live with this sense that God isn't speaking to us or God feels distant. And the, the, the wisdom of the, our mothers and fathers in the faith is this, God doesn't speak to shadows. God is waiting for our confession, waiting for our lament, waiting for, waiting for our acknowledgement of how life really is and what it has been. So I'm trusting that as we confess, as we repent, as we turn around, that hunger is gonna be increased because of that activity and that sense of interaction between you and God. He's never left you. The Psalmist said, where can I escape from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. And if I go to the depths, you are there. He's never left you, but he's been waiting for us to turn around and begin speaking with truth. Lord we confess our distraction we confess our escapism we confess where we have taken our eyes off the great wedding feast of the Lamb where we have forgotten that there is a story being told and written amongst us a story that will eclipse this present darkness Lord would you forgive us would you forgive us for taking our eyes off that And then for those of us in the room that have wrestled with this sense of being unqualified, I say to you, as the rabbi said to those disciples, I'm not looking at what you're capable of getting done. I'm looking at who you will become. His great welcoming phrase to us at the end of days is, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now enter the joy of your master. It is not, praise the Lord, well done, your good and fruitful servant. So Father, I pray a, a release from the, uh, the stronghold and the striving of qualification, from the weight of hyper-productivity, from hurry, from negative self-talk, critical thinking about ourselves. Lord, would you forgive us we receive the truth of how you see us. You are Mufasa's boy. You are Mufasa's girl. You cannot know yourself outside the eyes of your creator. You are lost because you must have forgotten. You are your father's daughter. You are your father's son. Who you are is defined by whose you are. So as we, are, as we just begin singing, you are worthy of it all. We turn our eyes and our gaze towards Jesus. We remember him and we lift him up. We declare his name above all else.